Well, I know we've already been prayed for, but I'm going to pray again, um, and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our Father through Christ's work on the cross. What an amazing thing that you would choose to adopt us through Christ, that you would pay everything that it took, that you would pursue us, you would chase us down, you would take our hard, cold hearts and do a radical transformation and make us into new creations. Lord, you would give us hearts to love you, to hate our sin, to grow, or to be able to open up your word and actually understand it. And Lord, you would save us to be knit together as a body. What an amazing What an amazing gift. Lord, we know that all that you've given us now is really just a down payment because Christ is coming again and you will receive us to yourself. And Lord, I'm bad at remembering that, but help us remember that. Lord, I pray that as we come together now as your people and we open up your word together, I pray that you would be so pleased to let your Holy Spirit be the one who fills each one of us that your word would go forth and accomplish exactly what you designed, Father. Father, God, I pray for each one of our hearts and minds, Lord. Father, life is full, and you know that. Work is good. You've given us work. You've prepared works in advance for us to do, but we get tired. We get weary. We get distracted. Father, so many times it feels like everything else you've given to us is more pressing than actually opening up your word and meeting with you and getting before you in prayer. And Lord, we need your grace. We need your help day by day to seek you first, to seek you most, to seek you continually. Oh Lord God, thank you that we can be here, that you love to build up your body through your body. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Get out your notebook. I imagine you do this every week. We are going to start by going over the Wellspring Purpose and Disciplines. Am I loud enough? You guys hear me okay? Okay. Um, The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And that is what we're after in Wellspring. And we have three disciplines to help us. And we review these every time we come together. And today, again, we're going to break them down and remind ourselves of what we already know because this is our foundation. If we get these disciplines worked into the fabric of who we are and how we think and how we make decisions, um, then we have a really good tool chest for sanctification, for walking with Jesus and for helping others grow in that sanctification. So discipline one is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. The heart, you've already heard this lots of times, it's who we are inwardly before God. And what our hearts need more than anything else is God himself. And that's what he's given us through the gospel. He's given us himself through his son Jesus Christ. And the place where we bring our hearts to meet with God in his word is the Bible. And so when discipline one says that she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through his word, it means that we pray and we open the word to be with God so that we are prepared to shepherd our heart all day long. Not that every conscious thought will be about Jesus, although that would be wonderful, 
But our time alone with God in prayer and in his word is where we prepare ourselves to trust God and to obey God. It's time to renew our minds so that we're thinking biblically throughout our day. And it's an opportunity to posture ourselves again as his slaves, ready to love and serve the people he puts in our path. We meet with God so that we're ready to preach the gospel over and over again to ourselves and to anyone else who will listen. But we don't end with discipline one. Discipline two is the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And as women, again, you've been hearing this all year long, we have a spiritual influence in our homes and we need to make it our practice to use the gospel and to keep the gospel central in the way we use that influence. The people we live with are are our priority because we see them more consistently than we see anyone else. And so we need to make sure that we are bringing Jesus to them, that we're bringing the gospel to them, and that we're being an aroma of Christ to them. Scott Maxwell uses the phrase, don't play leapfrog. I'm sure you've heard that many times by now. We can't play leapfrog over our own heart and our own sanctification, and we can't play leapfrog over our homes and our household relationships. Discipline, too, is about growing as a woman who has a heart for her household. And that's an important part of what we'll see in the Titus 2 lesson today. Then discipline three is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Now remember our wellspring verse. Remember that the heart is the wellspring of life. Everything flows from the heart. If our heart is full of God because of the word of God, then we are ready to care for others and to serve them and to point them back to the hope and the truth of God's word. It doesn't mean that we have all the answers, but it does mean we know where to look. Our lesson today in Titus specifically shows us God's design for how we can minister to one another as women. And so go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Titus. Um, I am just really delighted to be here with you today. And the women that you get to sit under week after week um, have all been Titus II women in my life. And they have helped me to grow, to understand and appreciate how rich and how sweet this book is, and especially these verses that we're going to focus on. And it fits really well at this point in the year, because I'm going to be pointing you back to lessons that you've been hearing because you've already been very well equipped to take what we're going to see in Titus 2 and to live it out. So if I refer to a lesson that you've missed or that it's a little foggy in your mind, it's been a little while, I want to just encourage you, if you can, try to take some time to go back and look through your notebook or go back and listen to the lesson you missed online because these are lessons that we don't necessarily get with one pass. You know, I know I need I need a lot of review, and I've been getting it, and I still haven't got them all down. Um, and so, if you have that opportunity to do a little review, it'll fill in some just uh, fill in some of the things that we'll talk about today. So, if we had time, we would read the whole book. We could, like Chris did a retreat on this a few years ago. I just love to start with the whole book, but. I'll just give you the little overview, and we would find, if we read the whole book, that it was written by Paul to Titus for a specific purpose. Paul wrote to help Titus complete the work that Paul had left him to do on the island of Crete. 
and that included setting in order what remains in the churches and appointing elders. And things needed to be set in order, at least in part, because there were rebellious men. They were empty talkers, they were deceivers, and they were upsetting families. These were men who professed to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. So part of setting the church in order is to instruct everybody in the church, everyone in families, how to live. Now, if you've ever struggled with how to understand the role that good works play in the life of a believer, you're going to find Titus to be really helpful because the believers in Crete needed to understand this too. It's important to have a biblical understanding of good deeds, especially when there are those who are denying God by their deeds. And that's what was happening. So before we look at the specific instructions for women, we're going to look at a couple passages that help us understand good deeds in the life of a believer. Now Titus 2, 1 through 10, are instructions for specific groups in the church. He addresses old men, older women, I don't know if it's old women, older women, young women, young men, and slaves, because they were also part of household groups. And then in verse 11, Paul lays out God's grace in the gospel as the foundation for these good deeds that he's instructing them in. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, and then he tells us what it does. First of all, it brings salvation to all men. And then verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus redeemed us from every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. He didn't save us because of our deeds, but he saved us to be zealous for good deeds. That is gospel fruit, an eagerness for good deeds. So let's keep reading in verse 15. And remember, Paul didn't write with chapters and verses, and so we're going to keep reading into chapter 3 because Paul is continuing with the same line of thought. Now in verse 14, we read about Jesus redeeming us to be his own possession, zealous for good deeds, and then in verse 15 he says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Jesus redeemed us to be his own possession, zealous for good deeds, but we need instructions, and we need exhortation, and we need to be reminded and reproved. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Remind them. This is so descriptive of our mixed condition. Um, We're new creations. We're saved for good deeds, but we need to be instructed and reminded and reproved to do those good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Verse 2, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, why do we do these things? Why are we to be ready for every good deed? Verse 3 says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But 
when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness. See, our deeds could never save us. But it's according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is the gospel. There was nothing good in us, but God saved us according to his mercy. And that's why believers obey. So here's the kind of thinking that we need to shepherd our hearts with. I was lost in sin, but God in his kindness saved me. He saved me. He poured out his spirit on me. He justified me. He's given me his grace. He's made me his heir. And he's promised me eternal life. And so I'm going to obey him. I can obey him. I obey this amazing God who has only worked for my good to purchase me for himself. I don't belong to me. I'm his. And he has a right to rule my life. And his rule is good. Look at verse 8. He's just given us the gospel. And then Paul writes, This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Titus needed to preach the gospel and instruct and reprove and remind and speak confidently so that believers would be careful to engage in good deeds. They are good. They are profitable. They're not burdensome. See, God gives us a better way to live than we would ever choose for ourselves. So go ahead and turn back to chapter 2. Throughout Paul's instructions for different groups, he explains why their obedience is good and profitable. In verse 5, he says it's so that the word of God will not be dishonored. In verse 8, he says it's so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. And in verse 10, he says it so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. See, our deeds matter. Good deeds protect the reputation of God's word and its crown jewel, the gospel. Our lives affect how others see that. That is what's at stake. And so that's why Titus 2, 3 through 5, is so important if we're going to talk about ministry with women how we care for one another, how we serve one another, how we shepherd one another, both the giving and the receiving of that. In the context of establishing and protecting the church and the families in the church, these are the instructions that Paul had for women. And they tell us the kind of women we are to be, and they tell us how to encourage one another. So now let's read the verses that we're here to talk about. Titus 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. And again, he tells us why. So the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, I wonder if you've ever made the same mistake that I've made in thinking about these verses. Have you ever thought that these verses would be perfect 
for the woman who's married to a really godly man. Or maybe she grew up in a house and she had just the most godly mother you can ever imagine. I mean, I can, I can kind of try to make excuses for myself along those lines, but that wasn't the context in Crete. This was a baby church, and these were baby believers. This was a first-generation church, and the book of Titus shows us that there were rebellious men in the church, and they had upset, that means destroyed and weakened families. There was greed, and the people of Crete had a reputation for being liars, evil beasts, gluttons. There were those in the church who needed reproof. And there was a common problem with lacking self-control, especially with alcohol. There were those who just loved to argue, who were divisive. And that's where these women lived. And they were coming out of that. And some of them were the daughters and wives of men like this. Their husbands may not have been believers. And Paul doesn't excuse them but he equips them how they can honor God's word. And this is it. I think that's amazing because I think it's awfully easy to think that this just wouldn't work with a husband who doesn't lead or he's not very godly or he's not a believer. But this is exactly what God has for us no matter our circumstances. That doesn't mean that it's easy ever may not ever be easy. It doesn't mean that we don't need help and encouragement, but God's design for us is a good design for every season. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> okay, we are on page two of the outline now. We can summarize the passage this way. The gospel is honored through transformed older women training transformed younger women. So let's start by talking about what is meant by an older woman. The text doesn't indicate a specific age range, and a lot of commentators think it could primarily refer to women whose children are grown. But all of us are older than somebody. And so these qualities are for all of us to be cultivating. For those of you who are younger, you have an opportunity to live this way so that younger girls grow up admiring godliness and biblical womanhood. And as we get older, it just continues. Each season brings new perspectives that can be a real blessing to younger women. And so what must gospel-transformed older women be? First, we are to be reverent in our behavior. And that word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple. It means being set apart and holy. Now, Paul certainly doesn't mean here that women, older women, is to serve as some sort of a priest, but rather that everything she does is done with a view towards worshiping God. It's what's described in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are to see all of our, all of our life as sacred and set apart. And how do we cultivate that? Reverence doesn't just happen because we get older. But we have to be committed to drawing near to God through his word. That's discipline one all over again. And a reverent woman is a doer of the word, not just a hearer, but one who's obedient and growing in her obedience. As the truth of the gospel saturates our hearts, 
and it takes up residence there, we press on to grow in reverent love for God and to overflow with holiness in every aspect of our lives. You know, reverent behavior, it kind of sounds old-fashioned. It's not really a popular character trait. It probably wasn't very popular in Crete either. But it's what God's word calls us to be. God's word says we are to be reverent. And when Jesus gave himself to redeem us, he was purifying us for himself so that we would be zealous to be reverent in our behavior. Now this first quality, being reverent in our behavior, it is probably functioning like an overarching umbrella quality, like when Paul uses above reproach for elder qualifications, and then he lists out what those qualifications are, what it looks like to be above reproach. Paul says we must be reverent in our behavior, and then he goes on to list what that looks like. So after reverent in behavior, we see we are not to be malicious gossips or slanderers. Now, the Greek word is diabolos, which means devil. It's actually used 34 times in the New Testament for Satan. And he is the one who accuses, and he is the one who slanders. He is the one who slanders us in the presence of God, and he slanders God to us. And he wants to divide. Go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 2. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. Any fault, any unfaithfulness, weakness, disobedience, sin, all of it is grounds for Satan's accusations against us before God. And sometimes we can be like that. Because it's just so easy to see others' faults. And this is just so dangerous. But believer, we have been saved out of that. Our example is not Satan, but Jesus. So go ahead and look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. See, Jesus knows all of our sin, everything for which we could be rightly accused. He knows it better than we do because he actually satisfied God's wrath against it. Remember, propitiation means wrath satisfied, and yet he does not stand as our accuser. He, in his righteousness, is our advocate with the Father. He pleads our case. He is recounting the work that he accomplished on our behalf in his death and resurrection so that we might not stand condemned before God, but forgiven. And that's our pattern. Rather than giving any room in our thoughts, our words, for accusations, for a critical, condemning attitude, by God's grace, we can be zealous advocates of God's grace and the gospel towards others. When we are, we will find ourselves committed to loving rather than accusing, wanting to help rather than to slander, working to unite and to reconcile rather than divide, and we will find ourselves praying instead of grumbling or gossiping. So we need to be concerned with how we use our words in our households and about our households when we talk about them to others, and we need to be thoughtful about the effect of our words electronically. And we even need to be careful with what we're willing to listen to other people say. 
If, if gossip is, or slander is finding a place in our lives, then we need to go before the Lord and we need to recognize what that's showing about our heart, about our sin, and we need to repent. We need to put on gracious words, merciful words, words that protect the honor of God's word and advocate well for others. Well, then in verse 3, the next thing we read, we read that we are not to be malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine. So those two qualities are linked with that word nor because there's a connection here. Not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine. They're related because when one has too much to drink, self-control can easily become negotiated away. And one area where that can be seen is with the tongue. And that's what we just talked about. The effect of alcohol can cause one to lose restraint over her words. Now, nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places, he condemns drunkenness. Drunkenness is sin. Now, the word enslaved, when it says enslaved to much wine, is a term of bondage. Now, why did he warn the women about this? I mean, after this overarching quality of reverence, Paul has only three instructions for the older women. And out of three, this is one of them. Perhaps it's because a woman may turn to alcohol to deal with life's struggles. Perhaps it's a way of dealing with being tired or stressed or hurt or lonely or angry. And she just wants some relief. And if that's where we turn over and over again, instead of shepherding our heart to the truth, like you heard from Tom Engstead when he was here with the lesson with the gray circle and the blue circle, remembering what's true about our desires and our, what we really deserve, then we may become enslaved and tangled to that sin. And of course, wine is not the only thing that can enslave. Titus 3.3 describes us before we were Christ's followers. It says we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. In Christ... We have been set free from enslavement. And now we are slaves of Jesus. And so if we are relying on anything for comfort other than Christ, spending money, eating, relationships, entertainment, social networking, we need to turn from seeking our comfort in those things and choose to find our comfort and our joy in Jesus. Not that those things are bad, but we need to guard against relying on those things instead of relying on Jesus. A reverent woman is a woman who shepherds her heart to find her fulfillment, her joy, her comfort, her peace, and her Savior. She's a woman who delights in trusting the Lord. This kind of woman is well equipped to give hope to younger women to testify that Jesus really is everything we need and that we can train our souls to find satisfaction in him. Well, finally then, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good. She's a teacher of winsome goodness. I love that phrase. Uh, She teaches with both her words and her example. So where is that going to come from? It's God's word, of course. God's word gives us God's wisdom. Teaching what is good is not just giving our opinions or our experiences, although there are times when that is still really helpful. Um, And sometimes we might think that we're not qualified to encourage or train a woman because we haven't experienced what they're going through. 
But 2 Corinthians 1.4 says that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Often the good we have to teach another woman is something the Lord has taught us as we walk through a trial. And this verse says that the comfort God has given us is what we give to others, regardless of the affliction in which we learned it. And God comforts us through his word, revealing who he is and all that he's done for us in the gospel and the hope we have for eternity. And so we need to be women who point others to God in his word, um, to trusting him and obeying him and assuring one another that he is faithful. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral two on the outline. What transformed older women must train the young women to be. Now, verse four begins so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. It's an ongoing influence. When we are in the position of being younger women, speaking for myself, I didn't always see my need to be trained. I was pretty confident. But I really want to urge all of us that one of the best things you can do to participate in Titus 2 is to cultivate a humble, teachable heart. It is not natural. You don't learn this in school. In school, it is a weakness to not know something. But believers are disciples. That means that we are learners. Um, And so look for what you can learn from the godly women God has put in your life. Ask questions. Listen to advice. Christ has placed us in a body. And sometimes through the most unexpected women, the Lord will teach us some lesson that we never would have even gone looking for. It might just be a conversation. It might be a woman's example. But it's important that we don't miss what Titus 2 is saying about the importance and the value of cultivating meaningful relationships with women in the body of Christ. So let's read verses 4 and 5. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. We are to train and urge the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. That's what this is saying. Now the first two, to love her husband and her children, address the gospel influence that the woman has in her closest relationships. Even if you're not married and you don't have children, you can think about what it looks like to pour the love of Jesus into your closest household relationships as we talk about loving husbands and children. Now in the Greek, these words are literally husband lover and children lover. It describes who the woman is, not just something that she does. So let's look at what it means to be a husband lover. In a married woman's life, this is a priority and it can be taught. It's in this list of things that older women are to train younger women to be. And this is a love that's not based on emotion. It means choosing to pursue devotion to your husband, to cherish him, to be friends with him as much as it depends on you. It's a tender affection that overflows 
from first loving Christ. It's lavishing God's grace on him. And each wife must learn to love her own husband. That means you need to know him and study him and ask him how you can be most helpful to him. And love means showing respect for our husbands. Listen to how the Amplified Version um, defines this idea of respect by adding synonyms from the dictionary. This is Ephesians 5.33. Let the wife see that she respects and reverences her husband, that she notices him, regards him, honors him, prefers him, venerates and esteems him, and that she defers to him, praises him, and loves and admires him exceedingly. See, loving and respecting our husband means treating him like he's someone special, because he is. He's the man God has placed in your life to be your husband. And we need to cultivate that from the inside out, to turn from even thinking disrespectful, critical thoughts about our husband. Cultivate thankfulness, forgiveness, admiration. Remember that he's made in the image of God. And remember that you can identify with his battle with sin. You know what it's like to struggle with sin. Don't compare your husband to anyone else. Just love him for who he is, where he is. Okay, that brings us to encouraging the young women to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application is for mothers, any woman can be a lover of children. And We have some wonderful examples of those over in the Wellspring Children's Program. Now again, this is a love that can be taught. It's selfless, it's affectionate, and it involves learning to train our children in light of God's grace. <coughs> And with all of these, and this one in particular, we need to remember it is a process. Excuse me. These things take time to learn and to grow, and we need to especially remember that in parenting. And so that means first and most, we need to be women who rely on God's grace that we are seeking to be gracious moms as a result of shepherding our own hearts so that we soak our children's lives with the gospel and his word. It means showing our kids how much we love Jesus, and it's teaching them how to live. It's rescuing them from their sinful behavior with godly discipline. So what are some ways that we might be unloving to our children without even realizing it? Well, it's not loving to overindulge our children or to ignore their sin or to try to buy their affection or their obedience with treats or promises. It's not loving to be inconsistent, basing our discipline more on our mood and convenience rather than their need to be trained. It's also not loving to respond to our children's sin with our own sin. It's not loving to only discipline wrong behavior without teaching right behavior. And again, we're talking about the direction that we want to be growing. We're not talking about perfection here. We are loving to our children when we help them understand how our standards reflect the standards of God's word, the moral reason why behind the behavior we're teaching them. And as I say those, I just have to raise my hand and say, guilty as charged. 
I am guilty of unbiblical parenting, of not loving our children biblically. All of these at one time or another. Inconsistency, impatience, anger, laziness. But we have a sure and certain hope. Jesus is the one who died in our place. He set us free from our sin and he redeemed us from every lawless deed, right? We saw that in Titus. Not if, but when we sin against our children, even if it's in response to their sin, we need to confess it. We need to ask their forgiveness and we need to share with them the hope of the gospel. Our hope and the hope that can be theirs. This kind of love is costly. It costs lots of time. And it'll tear your heart out sometimes. <laughs> it's not convenient. And it takes a lot of practice. And it is something you have to learn. But in the process, we learn to look to our Heavenly Father more and more. And to cry out to Him for help. And to search His Word for wisdom. And it's never too late. And I have to say, I'm just so encouraged. I know so many of you are laboring hard to do this in your homes. And praise God. Persevere. Excel still more. Well, the next quality is sensible. The ESV translates this word self-controlled. Now, being sensible means letting the gospel impact our minds. It's having a sound mind rather than basing our decisions on emotion or impulse. And it's a quality that's necessary in every other part of our lives. Proverbs 25:28 says that like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over a spirit. Self-control offers protection from all kinds of sin and foolishness. It is so important that this word is used just four times is used four times in just three short chapters of Titus. Now think about all the areas of our lives which require self-control. I was going to have you shout them out, but you're seeming kind of quiet. Anybody want to volunteer? What's an area where we need self-control? Eating. Eating. Speaking. Speaking. Spending time on the computer. Yeah. Computer time. Yeah. Other things. Yeah. Taking our thoughts captive our emotions, how we spend our time, how we manage our calendar, how we respond to the unexpected. Amy? How we dress. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, with our sleep, too much sleep, not enough sleep, takes self-control, takes wisdom. With our money, um, our priorities, our leisure, all of it requires a lot of self-control to use wisdom in those decisions. It's an overarching quality that is necessary for all of life. And so how do we do that? Well, you've already had some wonderful lessons on the discipline of shepherding your heart. Suzanne taught and Tom taught. And in those, you covered some wonderful tools that really help us with bringing the gospel into our sanctification. And those are what we need to apply as we seek to cultivate a sensible, self-controlled heart. And one of the biggest things we need to remember it is, that, is that it is a daily battle. And that's the case with any sin that we struggle with in particular. 
When we meet with the Lord in prayer, we need to be confessing our sin and our weakness. And we need to be consistently searching God's word for his truth to help us battle that temptation. We can memorize God's word and put it memos on our phones and sticky notes on our sinks and wherever we're going to see them that remind us that God's grace in the gospel instructs us and enables us to be controlled by the love of Christ, not by a love for ourselves. God has given us himself, and there is a satisfaction in knowing and drawing near to him, drinking in the river of his delights, that's Psalm 36, 8, that no self-indulgence can ever compete with. And we're weak. And so if we want to see growth, then we need to stay in the battle every day. And that displays the power of his gospel in our lives when we don't give up. Well, that brings us to pure. Turn back to 1 John again. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Pure means holy, set apart, pure inside and out, uncontaminated. It's a practical holiness and purity of life. This word for pure is used to describe both God's wisdom in James chapter 3. It's also used to describe Jesus himself. So this is a weighty word. There's no higher standard. And so how do we learn to be pure? How do we teach younger women to pursue purity like this? Absolutely unspoiled, even down to the center of one's being. Well, praise God, 1 John 3 helps us. Beginning in verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Anticipating Christ's return motivates us to an ongoing lifestyle of purification, of becoming more and more pure. First Timothy 5.22 translates this word free from sin. So growing in purity requires putting off sin, putting on holiness, and it requires that we keep our hope fixed on Jesus' return, that we continue to remind ourselves that he will appear and we will be like him and we will see him as he is. So if we're going to grow in purity, we need to ask, are we aware of impurities that we might be tempted by? What does tempt us? It could be a temptation to to have impurity in our thought life or our speech, maybe in our entertainment or how we dress. There's so much overlap between so many of these qualities. It could be in how we interact with men, how we think about them. Um, But we need to be diligent to flee from temptation and to repent of sin because Christ has already given himself for us to redeem us from every impurity, to purify us for himself so that we are ready to meet him when he returns. Um, And then number five is workers at home. This describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. The word is actually an adjective. You could say that we are to be homeworking women. It describes the kind of women we are to be in Christ. And again, it can be learned. 
Now this might be the quality that we are most uncomfortable with or that we don't really know what to do with it if we're talking with someone who does work full-time outside the home. But it might be that we're uncomfortable with it because we have a tendency to reduce it to something that's kind of black and white. You know, it's either do you work outside the home or do you not work outside the home? But there's so much more to being a home-working woman. If we are not employed outside our home, we cannot automatically conclude that that makes us a worker at home. And if we are employed outside our home, we can't conclude that we can't be workers at home or that we don't have a responsibility to be a worker at home. This is a heart quality for all women that is necessary for the honor of God's word. Now, when we look at the bigger context in the book of Titus, remember that Paul is concerned about the influence of rebellious men who are upsetting families. But in other places in scripture, Paul expressed a similar concern for homes, and especially the women there. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul describes households with weak women, and they're weighed down by their sins, and they're led by their impulses. These are not women who are pursuing purity and self-control. These weak women make households a target for evil men. These women are home, but they're not protecting the honor of God's word by the way they work there. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul said that there is a temptation for young widows not to work in their homes, but to be idle and to go from house to house and gossip. And if they do, they are giving the adversary an opportunity to speak reproachfully. See, a lot of times we point to feminism as the reason why our culture doesn't esteem a woman's role in her home. But this was a problem back when Paul was writing these letters. This isn't a new problem or a new attack. But biblically, the household is important. If you survey the New Testament, you'll find that the the households are noted for hosting and serving churches, extending hospitality, training children, teaching the gospel, instructing in sound doctrine and godliness, and refreshing believers, missionaries, as well as those who are in prison for their faith. The home is important to God's work in the church. And as women, we have a role as home-working women. We don't want our homes to hinder the reputation of the gospel, but rather we want them to be useful to the church. And that's what happens when we value and esteem the work of the home, when we are faithful in our homes to nurture and serve those who live and visit there. So this quality is not negotiable for any woman in any season of life. It's just like the other qualities. We don't look at purity and say, well, that only matters when you're young. right? Purity is a quality for every woman, every day, all day. And so is being a homeworking woman. This is a call to have a heart for the work of the home and to be diligent with it. So what does the work of a household include? Well, for a married woman woman with children at home, the home is where she loves and nurtures her family. And we already said that takes time. And it means choosing to find contentment in helping our husband and shepherding our children. It means being faithful with the work that a household requires, learning diligence and managing the many tasks. And there are seasons when the work of the home leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. Sometimes for a season, under well-thought-out circumstances, a couple might find it best for the family to have the wife working outside the home. But that is a weighty decision, and it needs to be made carefully 
And this call for women to be home workers needs to be weighed into that decision. It shouldn't be neglected. There needs to be a clear way for any woman to be a home worker if she's married, working outside the home, or if she's single, working outside the home, or going to school, or if she's home full time, where there are still things that can take us away from being home workers, being overcommitted, being lazy, or careless with shepherding our own hearts. We saw Paul's concern for that. And so how does that leave us to think about work outside the home? Well, you might, you probably are familiar with Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 woman is busy buying fields, selling garments, and thinking of people beyond her home. But it's clear from Proverbs 31 that this was not contradictory to her being a worker at home. Lydia is another example in Acts 16. She was a businesswoman. And she was hospitable. She pleaded with Paul for the opportunity to serve him in her home. In fact, understanding this role that she had in her household was one of the first evidences of God's grace at work in her life when she came to faith. Another example is Priscilla. She was married to Aquila, and Acts 18 tells us that they were tent makers. It was their vocation. It was like a home business. And she and her husband hosted a church in their home. Her work was not a hindrance to her role as a home worker, making her home available to the church. Now, there are circumstances that may demand a woman work outside the home. If you're single, living away from your parents, or if your husband is disabled, or if you're a single mom, or if you and your husband have decided that working outside the home is the best thing for your home and your family at this time, that it's necessary or it's what you need to do to submit to your husband, if that's you, then be a homeworking woman who also works outside your home. And do your work well. Do your homework well. And do your vocational work well. And do it without guilt. And do it to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23 tells us to do it as serving the Lord. And it's difficult. It's difficult to do both. It will require that you shepherd your heart diligently. And you may have to battle every day to pray and to flood your heart and your mind with as much of God's word as you can get. And there may be a whole lot of other good things you have to turn down. But you can trust your Savior, your Master. If this is what he has for you, his grace is sufficient for you. This is his plan for you to give him glory and to be made more like Jesus right now and if you are not working outside the home then be careful you too must shepherd your heart diligently don't be one of those weak women who are weighed down by their sins and led by their impulses don't be idle but protect the honor of God's word and your gospel influence in your home by managing your home well we defend the honor of God's word when we embrace the privilege of being homeworkers, both to serve and to shepherd. So if you struggle with seeing the value or the joy in that, find an older woman to help you cultivate a heart for your home. If you're married and you have concerns about how this plays out in your home, just ask your husband if he would listen to that Build message. You have a link to it in your notes. It's um, Scott Maxwell in Build every year teaches a lesson on Titus 2 to the men so that they can lead their women, their wives well in being Titus two women. And so you might want to listen to that with your husband to help you have unity about your understanding of this. 
But then number six, that brings us to kind. Now this word kind is actually more often translated good in the New Testament. It's a goodness that comes from the heart and then overflows into words and actions. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And that's, that, that's the word that's translated kind here. So we're right back at discipline one. And the way our heart gets filled with good treasure is by praying and meeting with God in his word. Do you remember when Chris taught Mary and Martha from Luke 10? When Martha complained that her sister Mary wasn't helping her, Jesus responded by saying Mary had chosen the good part. Same Greek word. She chose the good part when she chose to sit and listen to Jesus. Discipline one is the greatest good we can do for our own hearts. We draw near to God in his word, and he transforms us to be those who overflow with his goodness and his kindness. And again, like we've seen with so many of these heart qualities, that goodness will permeate our words. Ephesians 4.29 uses the word when it says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So when we are good and kind, it will show in our words. We'll be thoughtful and intentional about speaking with grace so that others are built up and encouraged and will be wise about when to speak those words as well. And kindness will show in what we do um, as home workers. It's interesting that kindness follows right on the heels of being home workers in Titus 2.5. Our heart attitude is often most clearly revealed right there in our homes with those home relationships. Jesus said, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. This is a high call. This is a daunting call and we are weak and we can never do this on our own but soaking our hearts with the gospel has the power to produce Christ-like kindness in us. And that brings us then to number seven, being subject to their own husbands. If you have not read the book Feminine Appeal by Carolyn Mahaney, I just want to recommend that as a resource. It just gives a very helpful gospel-centered explanation and application of all of these virtues for young women. And I used it especially in this one. But I want to start with a question. How do you view submission? being subject to your husband. Do you find it appealing? Or does it make you cringe? Or does it depend on the day? Um, If you react negatively to it, it might be because you've only seen a warped or incomplete version of it. But genuine submission brings immeasurable benefit to our marriages and our churches and tremendous honor to the gospel. Being subject in the Greek is the word hupotasso, and it means to voluntarily place oneself under. We are to line ourselves up under our husband's leadership. Now, submission did not begin with the New Testament, and it didn't begin when sin entered the world, and it didn't even begin at creation when God created woman to be a suitable helper for man. 
Submission even goes back before that because submission is represented in the very character of God. You have a quote in your outline from Wayne Grudem. And it says, The idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all authority relationships, authority is not based on gifts or ability. It is just there. The relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority on the one hand, and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. We can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority is a noble virtue. It's a privilege. It's something good and desirable. It's the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is his glory, the glory of the Son as he relates to the Father. And to further display this glory, God instituted a husband's leadership and a wife's submission at the beginning of creation prior to the entrance of sin. And then Ephesians 5 reveals God's ultimate intention for a headship and submission in marriage. It's to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. You heard that from Anne a few weeks ago, I think. This command is not punishment and it's not optional. God determined that we are to voluntarily place ourselves under our husband's authority. God designed submission for his glory. So if submission is such a good thing, why can it be so difficult? We can point to a lot of things, but ultimately the biggest struggle to submit comes from our own sinful hearts. We love to rule ourselves. We love to trust ourselves. We love to think that we are right And so we need to realize that our battle with submission is not a battle first and most against our husband or against someone else in authority. It's a battle with the sin in our own hearts. That is our adversary. Even when it feels like our adversary might be our husband, we need to remember Ephesians 5.22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The Lord is the one whom we are entrusting ourselves to when we submit. That's where our focus needs to be. Not on our husband's worthiness, but on the Lord's trustworthiness. He is the one we are trusting when we submit. So let's finish talking about this virtue with 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 verse 1 says, In the same way, and he's pointing back to Christ at the cross in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, You wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, primarily, this is referring to an unbelieving husband, but the principle applies to the disobedient, believing husband as well, the husband who isn't gentle or who, isn't, who is selfish or who doesn't serve. What is the instruction, even for this kind of a husband? Be submissive. Let them be won by your pure, respectful behavior. Verse 3 says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. And again, that's why Discipline 1 is our foundation. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God in his word. There's protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband because in that she's entrusting herself to God's design. 
And we can't assume that all young women understand this principle of submission because it's just so contrary to the world's message. Older women need to understand and then help young women understand that it puts God's character on display. It strengthens families and it protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust God. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? Let's look at our passage one more time. Verse three tells us how older women are to be, all the things we talked about, so that they may encourage the young women to be all these things we've talked about, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Why do we need to be care- Why as women do we need to be careful how we live? It's because the world needs to see the power of the gospel at work. It needs to see that the gospel is the truth that leads to godliness. That's what Paul says in Titus 1.1. The world needs to see that the gospel frees us from every lawless deed and that it purifies us and it makes us, as Christ's church, a people for Jesus' own possession who are zealous for good deeds. The world needs to see that we belong Jesus. It needs to see his image lived out in us. Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating. We used to be just like the world. But we've been saved. And how will the world know that? By us living obediently to Titus 2. We're not what we once were. And that is a powerful witness of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John MacArthur sums it up this sums up its importance this way. You have it in your notes. The world judges the gospel, which is the heart of the word of God, by the character of the people who believe and claim to be transformed by it. So, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you give us grace. Father God, we need your grace to think rightly about this. Lord, it's just three little verses, but it's just a fire hose. And Lord, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed by it. Father God, help us to remember that first and most, Christ is our righteousness. Lord, in the gospel, a righteousness from you is revealed, a righteousness which is by faith. Lord, these things are not to make us righteous before you. They're just simply our privilege to display the greatness of what Christ accomplished for us. Father, please persevere us, strengthen us, encourage us. Let us not be faint-hearted. I pray that you would bless the time of discussion. In Jesus' name, amen.